All right. Well, we uh, here at Calvary, one of the things that if you've been around for some time, you'll know that, that we'll take a book of the Bible and we'll go through the book of the Bible and we'll just study through. So over the past, I don't know, six, eight months since I guess last September, we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. And today we're in the home stretch of 1 Corinthians coming into chapter 15. There's chapter 15 and then there's chapter 16. Now, Chapter 15 is regarded by theologians as being the single most important chapter in the entire Bible. Single most important chapter in the entire Bible. I think that's a, a fairly bold statement, but uh, we'll, we'll see as, as we travel through. So because of that, there's some things that we're going to do today. Uh, I'm going to go a little bit deeper than I, I normally would. I'd like to get through a chapter each week, or at least a half a chapter today. We're going to get through four verses. And so uh, if I put you to sleep, just know that there'll be coffee after the service. So this is also the longest chapter in this letter. And it's considered by, I, I would think, universally by theologians as being the centerpiece of all Christianity. So as we, we get into this today, just a little bit of background. As, as you know, this letter to the Corinthians, the town was Corinth, and years earlier before Paul wrote this letter, Paul had come to Corinth. Now Corinth is a town in Greece, and so town ha- uh, Greece has some major towns, but before Paul came to Corinth, he came to this, uh, another town called Athens, and he gave a speech at a place called Mars Hill. And one of the things that Paul encountered as he comes to Greece is that very different than Israel, that, that they had certain deeply held cultural beliefs about how things were. And so one of the things that we find is just before Paul came to Corinth, again, he goes to this town called Athens and he speaks at a place called Mars Hill. And there in your outline, one of the things that we find is culturally, the, the Greek people did not embrace the concept of what you and I would call the resurrection. They believed in an afterlife, but they didn't believe that a body could ever come back to life. And so they rejected the whole concept of the resurrection. We see that there in your outline. Again, Paul is speaking in another Greek town just before he comes to Corinth, Athens, and uh, he gives this, this teaching and it says, when they heard about the resurrection, and I want you to underline that, the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, you want to underline that, but others said, we want to hear, hear you again on the subject. So they sneered because in their culture, they had this belief system that you could never be resurrected from the dead, that when you died, your spirit went on, but the body could never come back to life. So Paul, after he's there in Athens at Mars Hill, he comes to the town of Corinth. There in Corinth, he begins to teach the gospel and a church is established. He's there about a year and a half and then he hands the church off to another pastor and he goes on and he continues his missionary journey. What he finds is that years later, some of the cultural beliefs in the community and in the culture at large began to come into the church, and now the culture was shaping what the church believed. So much so that in this chapter, chapter 15, by the time we get down to verse 12, and I put this there on your outline, verse 12, Paul is going to be continuing. We're not going to get there today. We're going to just get to the first four verses. But Paul says, now, if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So what's taking place is that although Paul had come and brought the gospel, now what's taking place is that the cultural teaching is now coming into the church and it's shaping the way people think and the way that people believe. 
Again, not that they didn't believe in eternity, they believed in that, but they didn't believe in the resurrection. So if Paul were writing this today, because he's writing to a deeply held cultural belief that was very pervasive in the Greek culture, if Paul were writing this today to the church in the United States of America, he wouldn't deal with the issue of the resurrection because that's not something that we, we, we really struggle with. Most of us go to the resurrection, we go, okay, it's not something that we're bothered by. If Paul were writing this today to the church, he'd probably deal with the issue of Jesus being the only way, which is central to everything that we believe. But wouldn't you agree that in the church at large, there's this cultural belief that you know, we're Christians, but you can get there another way. Jesus isn't the only way. And in many places, that belief system is coming into the church. So if Paul were writing to the church in America today, he might shift things a little bit and, and uh, focus a little bit different on a little bit different uh, subject. Does that, that make sense so far? So Paul has been talking, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, about spiritual gifts. Then Paul says, but we really need to talk about something because something's missing. So we're going to pick it up in verses 1 and 2. And Paul says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. And I want you to underline the word gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast, which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, uh, which, in which you also stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So uh, we, we read that, And there's a few things as we unpack this that that are important for our understanding. Again, this is the most important chapter some would hold in in uh, in the entire Bible. So there's a few things we need to unpack. First of all, the word gospel there, you notice that, and I had you underline that. The, the word gospel there in your outline just means good news. I put the Greek word there, but it just means good news. Everybody see that? Now, the reason that this gospel is good news, you'll notice in uh, verse Two, he says, by which also you are saved. So this gospel is the gospel that saves you. So what makes it such good news? I want you to write this down. The result of receiving this gospel is that we're saved. We're just saved. And that, that's important. And then also you'll notice some of you have the NIV translation. And so I put a phrase there from the NIV there in your outline. And it says, by this gospel you are saved. And we'll talk about that. So when we think of being saved... When the, the concept of being saved means that something really bad was going to happen, but before that thing that was really bad was going to happen, somebody saved us. So let's say you go to the beach and um, you know it's springtime, summertime, so we head over to the beach, we hop into the water, we swim out a ways, all of a sudden the current begins to pick up, the waves are kind of crashing down on us. We realize that we're a little bit more out of shape than we originally thought. And so then we start to be taken by the current and we realize we're being pulled down and as we're being pulled down, we start to think, this is it. I'm, I'm going under for the third time. And just before we go completely unconscious, uh, an arm comes down, pulls us out, and we realize it's the lifeguard and that he has saved us. You see, to be saved means that something really bad was about to happen, but before that thing was really bad happened, we were saved from that. And, and so let's say you're in business and 
business isn't going the way that, that you thought it would be, and so you're getting behind on some of your bills, accounts aren't coming in the way that you had hoped, and you're thinking, I'm going to have to close the business, things are going to be very, very difficult, and all of a sudden, just before you have to close the business, that big account comes through, and it saves your business. Once again, something really bad was going to happen before that really bad thing happened, something else happened, and it saves you from that. You can't be saved unless there's something really bad that was going to happen. So far, so good? So as it relates to Jesus, it's the same thing with the gospel. You see, the, the Bible teaches that something really bad was going to happen, is going to happen. And uh, that really bad thing is going to be for all eternity. So before that thing happens, hopefully and prayerfully, Jesus steps in and he saves us from that really bad thing. That's why we use the term saved. That's why Paul uses the term saved. Now in our culture, uh, we talk about um, you'll find that there are those who would be professing believers and they'll say, I, I've been saved, I believe in Jesus, but they don't believe that we're saved from a really bad thing. When they talk about being saved, they think that Jesus comes and enhances, but that's not what being saved means. Being saved means something really bad was going to happen. Before that happens, something else happens and we're saved from that. So far, so good? Okay, like, like you mean it here, just, just jump, okay. All right. So that's, that's important. Now, once again, I also put that verse there on your outline. I love how the NIV says it. It says, by this gospel you are saved. And the idea is that there can be a number of different belief systems. What we're going to talk about today, this is what saves you. This is the gospel that saves you. Let me come to verse 2. Now, in my Bible, it says, by which you are also saved, and uh, which you are saved. I want you to underline that word saved, and we did that. If you hold fast the word which I preach, unless you believed in vain. Again, I'm breaking this down a little bit more than normal. But if you're like me, I grew up in the church, and every once in a while there would be a pastor, and he wants to make a point, and he comes to a verse, and in order to make the point, he'd say something like, and this here is in the aorist, indicative, imperative, passive tense. You ever been somewhere they do that? Anybody? Is there anybody? Not even, there's one hand. Okay. So we went to the same church probably, but, but when the pastor would, and they would say this stuff and you go, all right, I mean, how do you argue with the imperative, passive imperative? You know, how do you, how do you argue with that? None of us could. Well, there are certain times in the Bible where we in English, we have certain tenses in our language that, that uh, don't always translate over. There are certain tenses in the Greek language that don't translate over into English. Verse 2, we find one of those tenses. And so in most of our Bibles, if you have the NIV or the New American Standard or the King James or something like that, it, it leaves out something that, that's there. At least it misses the tense. So I've put there on your outline from the literal translation, if you have the ESV, it also picks up on this. But verse 2 there, from a literal translation, this is Young's literal translation, it says, through which also ye are, and then I want you to notice it says being saved. Does everybody see that? Being saved. And what the words I proclaim the good news to you if you hold fast except if you believed in vain. When it says you are being saved, in, in English it just says you are saved, but in the original language it's you're being saved. And the idea is what that does is it encompasses three tenses, which we don't have in our English, the past, the present, and the future. And so what Paul is saying here, again, important for our understanding of what it means to be saved, when you go to the Bible, there are 
three ways that we describe being saved. And they all, uh, they all depend on what we're talking about, the past, the present, or the future. So let me just give you a very quick three words that you want to know. First of all, when we talk about being saved in the past, and if you're like me, I remember the day that I walked forward at the church, Northwest Baptist Church, North Miami, Florida, walked forward, and I was saved on that day. We call that in the Bible, and you want to write this down, as the word justification. Justification. And when we say justification, typically what we mean by that is just as if I'd never sinned. You're made right with God, all accounts are settled, it's all completely gone. Which is why there in your outline I put the verse that talks about the free gift, and I underline that, arose from the many transgressions resulting in justification. You, you and I are justified, made right before God because of what Jesus did 2,000 years in the past. Justification is the aspect of salvation that is just a done deal. It has nothing to do with what you and I have done. It has to do with what he has done on our behalf on the cross. And so the only thing that you and I can ever do is to receive that. The Bible calls it the free gift, and we just underlined that word free gift. That's called justification. Let, let me uh, tell you how this works. Today I'm going to use three illustrations I only, uh, actually, I'm going to use two illustrations. I only have three illustrations. I'm using two of them today. If you come back next week, I'll use the other one. But it goes like this. In, in our family, as you know, we have, we have 12 children. So having 12 children, here's what we say. We will say that, that sometimes God puts babies in mommy's belly, and sometimes God puts babies in mommy's heart. And so whenever one of those babies comes to us either way, uh, one of the things that, that we've noticed in our family, without getting too graphic, but uh, it has nothing to do with what that baby has ever done. If that baby is in mommy's belly, it has more to do with what... The baby didn't make that decision. Let's just leave it there, and I'm going to move on from that, okay? And, and so that, they, they did nothing to get there. That was not part of their decision. And then on the other hand, they didn't do anything to get there. On the other hand, we talk about how sometimes God puts those babies in mommy's heart. And when God puts those babies in mommy's heart, once again, it's not because the child did anything. It's because mom and dad have chosen to act on behalf. So when, when you have that child come into your, your family, whether through the heart or through the tummy, we might say, you realize that when that child comes in, you are assuming 100% responsibility for that child regardless of what that child ever does. And uh, so, so here's how it's worked for us. Four times so far, We've stood before the judge, and God has sent a, a baby that, that we would say has come to our family through mommy's heart. And we'll stand before the judge, and the judge will say something like, you realize that in doing this, that, that this child is, you, you are taking this child, and, and sometimes these children don't turn out the way that you hope they would. Sometimes they don't love you back the way that, that you think they should. Sometimes they don't say, oh, thank you so much. They, they don't always do that. And uh, you need to know that regardless of whatever future behavior, regardless of how they are appreciative or not appreciative, you are now assuming 100% responsibility for this child come what may. And uh, we say, yes, we, we understand that. And then they will say, well, knowing that, and you also, you cannot send this child back. Once we do this, this child is yours. Do you still want to go forward? In which case, we've always said, yes, we do. Yes, we do. We realize that. That is a picture of justification. 
Justification in the biblical sense has to do with Jesus, God acting on, on his own decision on our behalf chose to save us, accepting 100% responsibility for us regardless of how we behaved in the future. Does that make sense? So that's the past. Then you have the present, the present tense. And again, this is one of those verses that has uh, three tenses. The present tense, when you read the Bible, it's typically referred to as sanctification. You want to write that down, sanctification. Sanctification is that growing in him. It's that living out your salvation day to day. There in your outline, Paul would say it like this. He says, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Sanctification. That deals with our current situation where we're living it out in in the day to day. So sometimes, if you're like me, sometimes in that sanctification process, I'm walking with the Lord and I'm doing great, and and sometimes, sometimes I'm not. So sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we don't get it right. Am I alone in this? So, so that never changes. That never changes the justification. It's just the living it out day to day. Sometimes we're doing good. Sometimes we're not doing so good. One of the things that I, I like to say, you know, in our family with, with these children, we're now living this out. Their being part of our family is a done deal. It's settled. So now we get to live it out. My children, my children aren't always good, but my children are always mine. My children aren't always good, but my children are always mine. And they're mine because of a decision that was made a long time ago. So that's how it is. So on the one hand, you have this living it out, and that's sanctification, but that never changes the justification. And then there's the future tense. And the future tense is just what we would call resurrection or eternity. The future, our future resurrection, our eternity, going to heaven, being with Jesus in the future, has nothing to do with our current behavior. It has to do with our justification. It's not how well we're living it out here. Some of us are going to drop the ball pretty big in our life, but uh, it has to do with the fact that he justified us. And then that's eternity. So that's the first part. When he talks about our salvation, it's the past, the present, and the future. Then he says in verse 2, he says, by which you are saved... And then he says, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. When he says you hold fast in verse 2, my my translation says hold fast. How many of your Bibles say hold firmly? Okay. Now, how many of your Bibles don't say hold fast or hold firmly? They just say keep in memory. Anybody's Bible say keep in memory? Is there not one King James Version person? (laughs) Yours says right here in front of me, keep in memory. Okay, so here's why that's so important. We tend to look at it in some of our translations and we say, you hold fast, like you got to hold on to Jesus. And if you don't, you're done. That's not what's going on, which is why some translations say, hold in memory, hold in memory. So I want you to write this down. Our holding firmly or keep in memory uh, is our sanctification. We're holding on to him day to day. We're living it out. But then that's very different than, than him holding us. His holding us is justification. Go ahead and write that down. So we live it out day to day holding on to him, but ultimately we're saved because he's holding on to us, which is why there in your outline, Jesus said it like this. Jesus says, I give eternal life to them. If you can lose it, it's not eternal. He says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And the good news is that you can't snatch you out of Jesus's hand. 
So, but now you and I have that living it out. So what we do in our current situation, in our sanctification, we would call that, we hold on to Jesus, we hold firmly. And the reason that we do that is because we've all met people that we know, they're believers, but right now they're not holding firmly onto him. And many times what happens is we see that person that we love, we know they're a believer, but right now they're making a train wreck out of their life. And they do that until they come back to that place where they begin to hold on to him. So that holding on to him has to deal with our current situation, uh, not losing our salvation or something like that. But then you notice the verse 2, the very last line, most of our Bibles would say, unless you believed in vain. Does your Bible say something like that? Last line of verse 2, unless you believed in vain. Now, when, when it talks about believing in vain, it's not talking about believing in the sense that you can lose it. I love the New Living Translation, and it says it like this, that last line. It says, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. So when you believe in vain, the idea is you were believing something that was never true. So Paul says that you hold on to this, unless, of course, it wasn't true to begin with. So Paul says, so I want to present to you this gospel, this gospel by which you are being saved, past, present, and future. So here's the gospel. This is the good news. And we'll get through two verses. Verse three, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, underline first importance, what I also received. Now here's the gospel. Christ, underline the word Christ, died for our sins. Everybody see that? According to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And uh, I, I love that. Paul, Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is not Paul's gospel that he thought up. He's saying, I received this. This came to him straight from Jesus. You also notice something when he talks about the gospel. It's the death, the burial, the resurrection. The gospel itself does not teach you how to be rich. It does not teach you how to be happy. Uh, Apparently, from God's perspective, there's something more important than being rich or happy. There's something, something that's even more important. And that's the gospel that he talks about. Our biggest need is not for our happiness or or to be made wealthy. Then I also want you to notice, he says, of first importance, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. That's important because it's not his teachings and it's not his life that he lived. It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection. That's the gospel. We'll talk about that in a few moments. I also want you to notice something else that's very important. Again, theologians tell us that this is the most important chapter in the Bible. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, and I want you to underline that word Christ if you didn't, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Did you notice that it said Christ, but it didn't say Jesus? And the reason is Jesus is his name, Christ is his position. So so what does that mean? Well, there in your outline, the word in the original language, we're all familiar with it, Christ is Christos. It means the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Uh, Messiah, if you were saying that in Hebrew, it'd be Mashiach, but uh, whether the Messiah or the Christ, it's, it's the same thing. That it had to be the Christ who died on the cross for our sins. So what does this mean? Well, when it says Christ, the Bible taught, and, and many prophets, when they talked about this coming Christ, it talked about who he had to be. 
And uh, there in your outline from about 800 years before Jesus was born, here's what it says. It describes who he would be. It says, for unto us a child is born. It's going to be born as a baby. Unto us a son, underline son, is given. So it's going to be a baby boy. And then it says, and the government will rest upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty, what's that word? God. Underline that. He'd be the mighty God. And in case we miss it, he's also going to be the everlasting what's it? Father, the everlasting Father, which is another reference to, to, to God. So when Jesus says, I and my Father are one, it's a little stronger statement than saying we're just in agreement. He's saying something very, very specific. So here's who this Christ would be. The Bible teaches that this Christ would be the mighty God and the everlasting Father. He would be born as a baby, so he'd be fully God and fully man, which is why when Jesus is raised from the dead, Thomas comes to him, and we know the story there in your outline, and Thomas says, Thomas answered him and said, my Lord and my, what's that word? God. He declared that Jesus was God. Now, here's what this means. You want to write this down. This means that Jesus, in this gospel, that Jesus is God. Write that down. God came to the earth 2,000 years ago, and God stepped into our place, and he paid the price for our sins. So this is the dividing line. We call this Christianity 101. All Christians believe this. Write this down. Christians believe that Jesus is God. You want to write that down. Christians believe that Jesus is God. Every other religion believes that Jesus is not God. You want to write that down. That's the dividing line. And that's central to this gospel. So come from a Catholic background, Baptist background, Methodist, Presbyterian, Christ Fellowship, Grace Emmanuel, Church in the Farms. We're all very, very different. But we're all united in the one thing that we all hold, that Jesus is God, which is why we worship Jesus. That's what it means to be Christian. Every other belief system holds that Jesus is not God. So the Mormons come to your, your house on, during the week and uh, very nice, well-dressed, cool bikes, and they show up at, and you get into a conversation with them and you say, well, 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 who is Jesus? Is Jesus God? They would say, no, Jesus is not God. Jesus was a son of God, not the son of God. Jesus had a brother named Lucifer. They are brothers. And, uh, but Jesus is not God. But you, as a man, if you live a perfect life, you can become God of your own planet. And we said, well, that, that's not what this says. The Bible teaches that Jesus is God. Saturday morning, the Jehovah's Witnesses arrive at your house, and uh, they're knocking on the door. You have your lights out, and you're hiding behind the couch. <laughs> but they know you're in there. <laughs> we have a rule at our house that our kids don't answer the door, and the only time they ever answer the door, for whatever reason, it's for the Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> because they give away the magazine, you know. And Cheryl says, and every time I'm in the shower. So, uh, and, so anyways, so you get into a conversation, you say, well, well, who is Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is God, mighty God, everlasting Father? No, we don't believe that Jesus is God. We believe that Jesus is Michael the archangel. He came to the earth as a man, and he died, and then he was not raised from the dead, but he ascended, and he's now Michael the archangel again. That is not Christian. So you're driving down the road and you come to a church and it says Unity School of Christianity. Unity, that's good. Christianity is good. And you say, I'm 
Find out what's going on there. So you go inside and you say, well, who is Jesus? Is Jesus God? They say, no, we don't believe that Jesus is God. Well, who is he? Jesus was a man, just like the rest of us. But through a number of reincarnations, reincarnated, 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 he finally becomes to the place where he's now Jesus that we heard of 2,000 years ago. At that point, he leads a perfect life. And uh, because he leads a perfect life, he then ascends, and uh, he does not die on the cross for your sins. Uh, The way that you are saved in the Unity School of Christianity is through endless uh, repetition of reincarnation until you work out your stuff, and then one day you just ascend. But they would say, Jesus cannot die for you for your sins because he is not God. He's just a man who's been reincarnated. All Christians believe Jesus is God. Everybody else believes Jesus is God. Not God. Never forget that. That is the dividing line. Verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for sins according to the Scripture. Christ died for our sins. Our sins. This means, write this down, I am a sinner. I am a sinner. There in your outline, Paul would say it like this. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In our culture... What's very commonly held is you have kind of this balance. And we look around and we say, well, I'm, I'm doing pretty good compared to that guy. And because I'm doing good compared to that guy based upon my standard, then I'm, I'm probably going to heaven. The, the, the problem with that is that it's not our standard that gets us in. It's, it's God's standard. The illustration that made the most sense to me is the, the illustration where, let's say, you and I we decide we're going to swim. We're going to head over to the Jupiter Inlet, and we're, we've decided we're going to swim to England. So we hop into the water, and off we go. We're just swimming away. And at the end of the first day, you look back, and you realize, I'm 15 miles ahead of Pastor Dan. I'm doing pretty good. And you would be doing pretty good compared to me. The problem is doing good compared to me is not the standard. You see, if if we're swimming to England, England becomes the standard, and the reality is that no one can swim to England. Does that make sense? So at some point we fall short. It's not our standard for ourselves. Well, the truth is, even though we might think that that, uh, we've done pretty good or we're doing pretty good, the reality is we've all done some things. We've lied, we've been dishonest, uh, maybe it wasn't our our, our spouse was maybe not the first person that we had ever been with. For, for some of us, we said, I do at an altar, and, uh, and then we didn't. And then uh, for some of us, we made some decisions concerning our firstborn child, and now that child's no longer with us. We've done some things. And so whether they're big things or little things, the standard is perfection. And so we've sinned. And so God said that he had to come to the earth and take care of that. There in your outline it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the reality is, although we've done these things, and we've all done stuff, God looks down at us because we're his creation, and because he created us, he loves us, just like we love our children. And God says, but somebody has to pay for those things. But God said, I can't bear to allow you to pay for those sins. So 2,000 years ago, God said, I will come to the earth as a man, and I will step in, and I will take the punishment that you would have to take if, if, you didn't, if I didn't step in. And so as he steps in, he's able to say, now that, 
that I've paid that price for you. You can go free. You can be justified just as if you never did anything. You're completely made right with God based upon what he did, not based upon what we do. Does that make sense? So go ahead and write this down. Christianity 101b, Christianity holds that Jesus paid for my sins. Every other religion holds that I pay for my sins. In, in the world in which we live, this is the only place where God says, I will step in and I will pay for all of your sins, past, present, future. Every other place, there are things that you must do to be made right with God. And uh, if, for instance, if you've ever studied Hinduism, you'll notice that there, Hinduism creates a caste system. One of the things in, in Hinduism is they hold that, that you're reincarnated. Eastern reincarnation is very different than Western reincarnation. Here in the West, when we talk about reincarnation, we always come back as a human being. And sometime in the past, we were always somebody famous. This is typically how it goes. And, and, and then when you go to Eastern reincarnation, you could have been a bug in the last, in the last life or, or an animal or something like that. So because Hinduism or reincarnation or karma holds, you have to pay for the stuff that you've done. In very strict cases, if uh, you're part of the upper caste, it's because you did well in your previous life. And so if you see somebody over here and they're suffering, you might want to help them, but because of your belief system, you would say they are paying for what they did in their last life. If I step in and I take and I help them in this current situation, what that does is it hurts them in their future life, and they're going to have to pay for that again in the next life. So it's very common to not help somebody because you don't want to mess up their future in the next life. Does that make sense? So, so it holds that, that you, you, you pay for your own stuff. Verse 4, and he was buried and that he was raised on the, day, raised, uh, on the third day according to the Scriptures. So in the gospel, you have Jesus was buried and then raised from the dead. Buried and raised from the dead. And then it says, according to the scriptures. Again, we've looked at many of these verses as we've been traveling through this book of Corinthians, but uh, I'll just give you one when it says, according to the scriptures, about 800 years before Jesus was even born, it described his death. And one of the things it said, it says, his grave was assigned with wicked men Yet he was with a rich man in his death. And uh, we know the story how Jesus dies on the cross. You only die on the cross if you're considered to be a wicked person. And when you die on the cross, they typically discard the body. So his, his death was assigned with the wicked. But we know the story of Joseph of Arimathea who shows up and says to Pilate, the governor, I want his body. And so he takes the body and places it in the tomb. That was in a rich man's tomb. So this was all written about 800 years before Jesus was even born. And so he had to be buried because he was really dead. It says he died for, for uh, verse 3 says, I delivered unto you first importance what I also re- received, that Christ died for our sins. He had to really die according to the scriptures. He was buried and then he was raised on the third day. He was buried because he really died. And as you read the story, they went to great lengths to make sure that he was really dead. But he had to be raised from the dead. That is, he had to step back into his body and come back to life. And many religious leaders, and this is different than other religious leaders, 
many religious leaders have said some, some very interesting things, but then they died and you can go to their tomb. You can, you know, their body is still there. But Jesus proved that he was who he claimed to be by coming back to life. I grew up in the church and I never really wrestled with the concept of the resurrection until I went to seminary. And it's at that place there's a reason why they call seminary cemetery because many times your faith can be wrecked as you go. So it's a wonderful experience because it makes you think. But there was a time when I had to really wrestle with the concept of the resurrection. Was it true? Because if Jesus really did come back to life, then it, it really is true, everything that he said. And so somebody suggested that I read a book by Chuck Colson, which is called Loving God. And this is back in the, the late 1980s. And there's a part in that book where Chuck Colson says, this is how I became a believer, as he considered the resurrection. Every apostle who saw Jesus come back to life died because they would not recant that they had seen him come back to life. See, as Peter was being crucified upside down, all he had to say was, I didn't really see Jesus come back to life. And uh, there's no reason to die for something that you deep down know is not true. John was boiled in oil. All he had to say was, it wasn't true. I didn't see Jesus come back to life. And, And all the rest of the apostles and all the horrific deaths that they went through, if just one of them would have said, it's not true, we didn't really see Jesus raised from the dead, then the whole thing would have fallen apart. But not one of them ever recanted. And as I looked at that, I came to believe that you don't die for something that deep down you know is not true. And I came to believe in the resurrection that that it actually happened. And because of that, I was able to take my faith to a whole new level where I wasn't just saved because I grew up in the church. I understood this was an eternal truth and it was verifiable. Hopefully that that makes some sense. Finally this. I want you to notice something that's not part of the gospel, and we'll wrap up with this. What's not part of the gospel, although it's wonderful, it's it's, uh, great to study, but but it's simply not part of the gospel that we read. Write this down. What's not part of the gospel is Jesus' teachings, and uh, you might want to add, it's not on the screens, but you might, might want to add his life, his life. What, what is the gospel is that God died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried and he was raised. Now, why is that so important? Some, through the years, have thought that Christianity was just a new philosophy. So if you, you, you'll encounter people who will say, well, you know, the most important thing is to focus in on the teachings of Jesus. You know, love your neighbor, uh, turn the other cheek, give forgiveness. Those are wonderful things. But that's not what saves you. That's not what saves you. What saves you is the gospel. God died on the cross for your sins. He was buried. He was raised again. Believing that is what saves us. When, if you've ever gone to seminary or Bible college, you're going to be introduced to to a number of theologians, mostly dead German theologians. And uh, they're, they're very helpful if you're an insomniac because nothing will put you to sleep faster than reading a chapter of some of their writings. But there was one in particular, and his name is Rudolf Bultmann. His contribution to theology was to say that you need to demythologize the gospel. That is, you take out the miracles, 
and uh, you take out the resurrection, you take out the things that they would say would be mythology, and you focus solely on the teachings. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. All of those things are wonderful, but that's not what saves you. What saves you, again, being saved means something really bad was going to happen, but before that happened, you were saved. It's coming to the understanding that God came to the earth as a man, that he died on the cross for our sins, he was buried, and that he really did come back to life. He was raised on the third day. And that is the gospel. Make sense? Thank you. With that, we're going to uh, close in prayer. And we're, we're, we're out of time, but let me say this. If you're here today and you're of the mindset that you, know, you focus in on Jesus' teachings, love one another, and that sort of thing, that's all well and good. It's just not the gospel. That does not save you. Don't leave here today until you know that you know that you know that you have settled this issue of making sure that you're right, justified with him. So I'm going to close in prayer. After, after I do, there's going to be some prayer partners standing in the front. They would love to pray with you. But don't miss that which is, I don't even know, I, I wish my vocabulary was, was big enough because I want to say central, it's bigger than that. Everything rises or falls on what we just looked at today in those two verses. Any deviation, and then it's no longer the gospel. It's something else. You want to make sure that you get this gospel. This is the gospel which saves you. With that, let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for this congregation. I'm thankful, I'm thankful God, for their hunger for your word, their faithfulness to you, their love for you, and their desire to be our desire to be the people of God that you've called us to be. Each week we say, help us to walk in a manner worthy of you. Help us to, help us to represent you. Help us to understand uh, that, that you really did come to the earth and you really did have to pay for those sins because of the things that we've done. And then you made us right with you. And all those things, no matter how bad they are or were, they're, they're now gone in our relationship with you. And then, Father, I pray that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.